A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's time to walk to the back of the stand, where the truth is really told. I'm Mark Saggers, and on the Sunday Night Club, we delve into the sports that matter, the controversial discussions that others aren't brave enough to have. In this episode as well, we look back at the life and times of Stan Bowles. Rest in peace, Stan. Courageous, confident, a great fella, who we all felt was one of us. There's Maidstone's Cup magic still going on, and what could be the last cup final at Wembley for Liverpool's Jurgen Klopp. There's rugby Six Nations and testing times for England again in this test in India. Sad news of two footballers from a different generation who've both uh, died over the weekend. Chris Nicholl, who was the Aston Villa centre-half, uh, played uh, some magnificent games in the 70s. I guess at some stage he probably will also have um, been defending against the great Stan Bowles. And it's Stan Bowles, the former Queen's Park Rangers star, played five times for England, should perhaps have played many more times, that we're going to start the show with tonight. Not because for many Stan Bowles was just another footballer, because he was anything but that. He had everything when it came to skill on the pitch and off the pitch well he was one of us really he liked more than just the odd flutter he liked to have a party and he liked very much just to enjoy it he was very serious about his footballer but it wasn't absolutely everything my god he was good he was really good how he only played five games for England, well, that'll be down to any sort of politics because might not have been quite the right sort of player for the Blazers. But he was for all of us and certainly for Queen's Park Rangers fans. And for Tony Incenso. Tony has a photograph signed by Stan Bowles in his office. He posted today a photograph of the two of them. And it's going to be difficult for Tony to talk tonight about Stan Bowles because he was very close to him. And I guess your favourite Queen's Park Rangers player of all time, Tony, good evening. Good evening, Mark. Really, really sad to have to talk about this. Um, but let's celebrate the, the life and career of Stanley Bowles. He was the best footballer I ever saw live. He's the reason why, as a, a young child growing up in northwest London, the reason why I support Queen's Park Rangers, the reason why generations of people support QPR. He's left a legacy at the club. He was a magician on the pitch. He had a, an outstanding left foot. He could score a goal. He could create chances. And off the field, he was larger than life. At a time when, in the 1970s, Mark, footballers and, and rock stars mixed together and football was rock and roll. And as you said, Stan loved a party. He liked a drink. He liked a cigarette. And he loved gambling. So on and off the field, uh, an absolute legend. 
He was really, and uh, you know, looking back on on his life today, you, you perhaps forget in a way that he came from the northwest, from Manchester. He wasn't actually uh, a London lad, but he very much acted like one. Yeah, he started off at Manchester City, didn't he? And then he went to Crewe and Carlisle before he came down to London in 1972. He signed for QPR and. Uh, he became part of that great Queen's Park Rangers side in the mid-1970s that almost won the league. Mm. It's unbelievable to, to even reflect on this now. QPR were a point away from winning the league in 1975-76 and Liverpool picked Rangers in the final game of the season. It was just unbelievable. But the manager was Dave Sexton and he played a, a pure style of continental passing football, a rotational football where players would drop back while other players went forward. And, and Sexton used to go and watch the great teams. We didn't see foreign football on the TV then. So Sexton would fly out every Sunday to Germany or Holland to watch the great Borussia Mönchengladbach or the great Ajax teams. And he'd have this passing football, which really suited Stanley Bowles. And, and, and Stan had a great partnership and a great uh, understanding with Jerry Francis, who was the England captain. Amazing to think that Queen's Park Rangers had the England captain at the time and, and had five players in the England team at one point, including Stanley Bowles. And that 75-76 side, the greatest team never to win the league, and Stan Bowles was the star player. He was. I mean, we mentioned uh, at the beginning there he only had five international caps. He, you know, the, the, the Blazers wouldn't uh, have thought perhaps he was their sort of man, which is very sad, really, because he could have been something special as part of anything with England then. Absolutely. It, it was different. There were different times. In those days, there were all sorts of maverick players, weren't there? Every club almost had one. And it was a really exciting time to be a football fan. And you could um, you could appreciate the maverick players at other clubs. You could admire people like Leighton James. You could admire people like Tony Curry, like Charlie George, like Frank Worthington. You know, you, you it wouldn't even be a secret admiration. You would admire them as a general football fan. Nowadays, I don't think that would happen because there's so much banter and people ridiculing each other. And, and running down different clubs on Twitter. Uh, but in those days, you respected those Maverick players. And Stan Bowles was much loved. If you look at all the tributes being paid to him, there are thousands of tributes to him online today from people who support all different clubs. And they say, oh, I was a Leeds fan or I was a Manchester United fan. But I used to love seeing Stan Bowles come to play against my club. And there were great times in the 1970s where there were these outstanding mavericks all around the country and everybody could appreciate them. Yeah, I mean, the the, the gambling, of course, uh, gets carried away with at times uh, in the stories. But the great line, of course, uh, from I think what was one of his early managers uh, that he, um, he gave a swift retort to as well when he said if uh, only Stanley um, could... Uh, pass a bookies as well as he could pass a football he'd still have been a multi-millionaire yeah i think it was joe mercer who said that and it, it was true i mean queen's park rangers in those days you'd have a big game end of the season to win the league Thirty thousand people turning up to watch rangers play leeds united last game of the season and dave sexton would look around the dressing room and say where's stan where's stan and stan was in the betting shop around the corner until 10 to 3 in his full kit he'd come in get changed put on his blue and white hoops and then go into the betting shop till 10 to 3. And he didn't have a, a warm-up. He didn't have the, the, the professional warm-up they have now with all the fitness coaches. His warm-up was in the betting shop. And then he'd come in and he'd go straight out onto the pitch and he'd run rings around the opposition and score the winning goal. It was unbelievable. Brilliant, Tony. That's exactly the way I want to remember him. And thank you very much indeed for paying tribute to one of your great friends as well. Stanley Bowles, who died at the age of 75. Chris Nichol also died uh, in his 70s 
as well this weekend, uh, both of them from dementia. No mention of football and dementia. Perhaps there should be as well. And certainly, again, I just want to nudge people towards things like the Astel Foundation and how we must keep up the momentum to help those who've lost footballers at all different levels, uh, because probably for heading a football. Let's start uh, and look at back at what was the first of the cup finals of this season. It was the EFL at Wembley and uh, it's Liverpool against Chelsea. Chelsea, who've had a nightmare season under new ownership. Somehow they've managed to get to the final up against Liverpool, who are now under Jurgen Klopp in his final season. They still have this opportunity of the quadruple to come with uh, the Europa League still in the FA Cup playing again this week. And of course, uh, very much involved with the Premier League. Today, it was the very last minutes of extra time that decided it. A goal from Virgil van Dijk. Both had chances, both missed chances. In the end, would, did Liverpool deserve it? I guess they probably did. Uh, let's talk to uh, Lee Phillips, who's the Liverpool podcaster, and to Jonathan Kidd, who's the Chelsea fancaster. Lee. Well, the, the, the first of four, really. Um, a decent enough game today. One or two little bits and pieces and moments of controversy. But um, in the end, as Liverpool can tend to do on these occasions, just somehow finding a way to get it done. Yeah, I'm unbelievable. Really, really happy with today's result and the way it went. Um, I mean, as you see, we were kind of, if I'm honest, I felt that we were in control at the beginning of the game. Then that, that tackle on... Um, on, on, on grabbing back there it, it kind of kind of Chelsea then got into the game again I mean as I was just so impressed I'm just so impressed with the way this team has been going about their business when the youngsters come in they do a job like and it, I think in the end it was probably well deserved because Chelsea actually towards the end looked finished they were run out they run mm. out of puff it looked like they were ready for the penalties if you said to me at the start of the extra time would you take penalties I'd have said yeah yeah <laughs> no, I completely understand that. And just one for, for more for you before we speak to uh, Jonathan and bring in him as well here. Um, mm -hmm. For me, this now bringing on this beginning of the next generation of Liverpool, I think will be as much Jurgen Klopp's legacy as anything else. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> wow. I mean, he's leaving now, but to leave us in such a good position is it doesn't normally happen. Generally, when managers leave, they leave on the on the back of being sacked or something so um, and the team's left in a bad way but the way the team's being left now is we're in really good shape so hopefully we get the right man in um, and he doesn't want to make too many changes and look I can't see anything else but good things man Jonathan join the uh, conversation good evening to you uh, I'd love to say it was great to be here, but I'm uh, <laughs> immensely depressed by the experience. I, I can uh, I can imagine, and we we've all been there on varying different occasions. Um, I've rushed back from Wembley. I've just got back to the computer here, just yeah. to run in. Sorry, you know what? You, you had you had your opportunities. Oh, we should have won it in the last ten minutes of the of, of normal time. Chance after chance after chance, and then he he brings the youth team on, and it's embarrassing. It was an embarrassing second half display. We didn't get into the Liverpool half for the first ten minutes of extra time, mm. and he's got he brought Mudrick on, who has the brain of a whelk. I'm afraid, a football brain. I'm sorry to be so rude. He is really not good enough. Good enough in that environment, and and it's almost as if they were playing for extra time. I think I think you were just saying, weren't you, that yeah. that it looked they both looked exhausted, except Liverpool did less exhausted because all the youth were on, and the, the Van Dyke header 
He'd already scored that when it was disallowed for offside. Who was marking him? The mistakes that they make. Disasty was absolutely disaster area for the whole of the game. Kept being caught in possession. Why on earth, when Liverpool play so tight and rely heavily on the ball being punched down the, the, the pitch to run after it, do they not do the same? Why do they play short all the time? It is a recipe for disaster. How did Gallagher miss so many chances in front of goal? Why take a touch over oh, the days of Viali or Hasselbank? There's the goal. Bap, it's in. Mm. What? I am in despair watching this team. They cannot hit a cow's ass with a banjo. They are absolutely dreadful when it comes to shooting. Oh, my goodness me. Oh, well, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned with all of these things, and I feel your passion and I feel your pain as well here as well. There's no, there's, there's no, no doubt ab about this. And just before I come back to Liverpool, I mean... It's the sixth time we've lost in a cup final. Yeah, well, I, I know and well, but, you know, the, the, there's this other sort of weird thing about Chelsea at the moment, of course, because of new owners and uh, different ways of trying to do things and uh, Pochettino somehow in the middle of all of this. Um, do the fans really know where the club is going? No, no, but they're all talking about what a lovely day out we had. They're not talking about the football. When that takes over, you know the club's in a, in a terrible state when we're talking about, well, I had a nice time in the pub with my mates. And that's what's happening now. They've got, they have no idea. We don't know which team's turning up. This, this was the team today that couldn't shoot. The last, first 20 <laughs> minutes, funny enough, they were the team that just gave the ball away all the time. Whatever, all over us 20 minutes. They just press. Has Pochettino not told them that how you deal with people teams pressing you play the ball long i don't, i feel you know i should be earning four hundred fifty thousand pounds a week i seem to know more than he does oh. uh, I, I, I'm, I'm in despair I've, I've, we just watch the same rubbish often it's either one team that can't deal with it or suddenly one week they actually turn up palace was a great example the other day when they played one shot on goal in the whole of the first half second half they're excellent what happened? What happened to their brains? What their mentality? I, I mean, we are all aghast at what is happening with the club. We keep saying, would it be nice to have a striker up there who actually can put the ball in the net? You feel that might might actually achieve, might solve several issues. The yeah. number of times the ball is in the penalty area. Where was that wonderful moment in the last few minutes before extra time came where the ball pinged around three times and hit about four different sets of heels and nobody put the ball in the net? We're all going, yeah, oh, and then part of us just, we all go, Oh, well, it's them. We just accept it, really, don't we? Yeah. But it, it's just so, it's it's embarrassing. I'll tell you the extra time. Losing to the youth team? What was Pochettino thinking? Well, I, I, we'll I, ask I, Liverpool about that youth team again as well now. Um, Jonathan, I understand your frustrations and I understand that. Sorry, the, I'm not, I'm, it's, it's not very, uh, it's, it's, where could I put it? It's, it's not terribly um, measured analysis i don't expect it? measured that analysis from a from a, a fan who's just come back from uh, wembley thank you very much Good. So don't, worry, don't worry about that as well actually uh lee though i mean you've now got so much still to look forward to having got that one out of the way yeah yeah we have and I, i'm just hoping that we can use it um as a catalyst to, like kick off the rest of the season um i mean we're, we're managing in the league okay um kind of convincing in our wins and stuff really uh, Wednesday is next with Southampton. <laughs> it's like looking forward to these games because I just think, what kind of team are we going to put out? What team's going to be available to be put out? And how are they going to play in that game? Like, it's exciting. It really yeah. is. Well, look, uh, it's a good place to finish there. Exciting for Liverpool. Uh, exasperating for Chelsea.
Well, continuing our football now, there was uh, one Premier League game today. Uh, let's visit it. Much better for Wolves than it was uh, once more for Sheffield United, who are in uh, all sorts of uh, problems right now. Good evening to Dan Hughes and to Johnny Gascoigne. Uh, Dan, I'll come to you first, if I may. Uh, you know, it was a, a decent performance. You wouldn't say it was an outstanding performance today at all, would you? But what you would say is that you got the job done for the first time at uh, in the league this season with a win at home at Molyneux. And Gary O'Neill's side, you know, you, you, you're doing it in the right way now, whatever, whatever anybody else says. And uh, don't even think yet about not thinking about a possibility of Europe. Yeah, evening saggers. Yeah, today was all about getting the three points, whether it was by hook or crook. I mean, Johnny will be disappointed because Sheffield United were the better team the majority of that game. Um, but one one piece of quality has won the game today because of the rest of the game, both sides were really lacking quality for the majority of it. Tell us about that header then from uh, Sarabia. I mean, he's not the sort of... Um, uh, he wouldn't be one of my main Wolves players, I'd suggest, would be, um, you know, scoring a header... Uh, with a late one into the box, but yeah, Ryan Aitnor is a special talent, um, and he's he's put it on a tenpence for him. And uh, obviously, their keeper has uh, got no chance of that. It was, it was a great header, Johnny. Um, where does Chris Wilder go at the moment with this? Because uh, he's come back in; it's just not happening. No, we, we've seen improvements in certain performances. Um, recruitment at the beginning of the season has not really done him any favours. No. Then we played Brighton, obviously Mason Allgate, Mitch GBH, we went first few minutes at game, so we got spanked there. And today was an improvement. Um, we, I don't think we played particularly badly, but I don't, like uh, like you just said, there weren't much quality on the pitch from either side. Uh, but when the quality did show, I think Wolves took advantage of it, where we just didn't have a shooting boot. So we had chances, but we, we couldn't get in the back of the net. So I think what Chris Wilder's got to do is just keep plugging away at what he's doing is dope for the best really yeah i mean it's a sort of the, the way i remember when you you first returned uh to the top flight really there was a side that for all of the surprises they had and 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 the victories that they got what they really had as well was was uh, was a hard ethic knowing that even if we haven't got all the quality here we're not going to make stupid mistakes and that doesn't seem to be the same this time around Exactly. I think we we had a, a set lineup, a set spine of the team that had been with us since League One, really. Yeah. Um, we built that ethos, that team spirit. Everybody knew to a man what their job was. Um, we had Dean Henderson in goal, brilliant goalkeeper. Jack O'Connor was a key part. And the season after that, we lost both of them. Uh, and obviously, we know what happened that season. We got trounced every week, a bit like we are doing at this point. We've never really replaced that spine of the team. I think Chris Wilder, since he's come in, has, has put a bit of that togetherness, uh, a bit more of a better team spirit than what was there before. But when you're a championship side that's lost the best players at the beginning of the season before a Premier League season, there's not a lot many people can do. And a lot of people say, no, oh, you're getting spanked every week. It's difficult. You, you have one games where you look better. Today we look better. We only lost 1-0. Yeah. But then you obviously you have your, your other games where we concede five at home and it's... It's by hook or by crook, it's just not happening. Yeah, no, and what, one more on that as well. I mean, sadly, one of the two of the, the headlines will be, because people think it'll be good to, to highlight this, but um, I'm going to actually mention it, but a couple of your players having a little go at each other, but that was, you know, that was frustration more than anything, wasn't it? I believe so. We saw a thing come up on the VAR saying violent conduct. We're like, what's happened here? We found out it's uh, Vinnie Souza and Jack Robinson yeah. arguing, I think. Yeah. But it sounds daft, that shows to me at least they care. 
Which... Exactly. <laughs> and I think all of us as fans think like that. You know, if, you've, if you're yeah. having to have a, a, a go at another player for not doing what he should be doing and properly has done in training during the week or whatever, then, yeah. you know, I, I don't mind that. Do you? No, not at all. I'd rather them have a go at each other, show some passion, show some fight, show that they are, they do still care. They do still want to pull off the miracle of all miracles, as unlikely as it may be. If they were just throwing arms around in handbags and not wanting anything to do with anything, I'd be more concerned. Yeah. But back to Wolves now, Dan. Uh, I know that with uh, a lot of the sides above you, of course, and some of those below who think that uh, it's just a case about spending and the entitlement, entitlement of being um, in that top uh, a little bit of a club in the Premier League. I I'm delighted that Gary O'Neill is showing that it's not just about having to bring in um, an extreme expense players and a management team just because everyone says they're the people that you need. No, he's um, he's serving out uh, play to fumble play every week at the moment. Gary O'Neill is his... He's done an outstanding job this season. Like you said, uh, lack of budget, not just in the summer window, in the January transfer window. He, he wasn't backed by the club. He's, he's really doing wonders with the players that he's got. A, he's disposed, obviously, Wangi Chan's our top goal scorer at the moment. Um, Matthias Cunha, I think he only finished last season with maybe one or two goals. Um, he's been massive for us this season, a, a big miss for us at the moment. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see what Gary O'Neill can do in the summer with a bit of actual financial backing. You'd likely to think that Pedro Neto is going to be sold for, for a big value in the summer. Hopefully he gets uh, a strong percentage of that budget if he does go. Yeah, I mean, that's always the worry, though, isn't it, for you? But what, what, what he has done already here now is that you know that you're going to be there next season. Let's say, I mean, mathematically, I'd, I'd say we're, we're pretty much safe now on 38 points. Um, but, you know, we're, we're a point off seventh now. It's... We've got nothing to lose. We're already overachieving this season from what the, you know, the uh, the stance was going into the first game of the season after uh, Lockatagi left. Um, we've got Brighton in the FA Cup on Wednesday. Um, if we get yeah. past that, you're in the quarterfinal. Then who, who knows was, where the season ends? Yeah, I was just going to actually mention um, that before I come back to uh, Johnny Dan that you, you you've got Brighton at home and in the and the position you're now in, you can really give this FA. Cup a, a, a go quarterfinals next if you should get through and then anything can happen. Yeah, exactly. I think Gary O'Neill's mentioned it in, in press conferences recently that uh, the club really want to make a go at the FA Cup this season. Obviously, we got to the FA Cup semi final a handful of years ago where we had a really uh, brutal ending, losing to Watford the way that we did. So hopefully, we can get back there again. Hopefully, go one better. What does it feel though back at Sheffield United? Is there uh, already an inevitability about what's going on? Do you think, or of uh, is there still things that you think, Johnny, that this side can do? It's a strange one because I'm half really pessimistic, like a lot of our fan base. You kind of think each week, ah, oh, it's game over now. We're just playing for pride. But then I think, like every other football fan that's been there up and down the country every year, is that romantic side. Well, there's no R next to his name yet. Who no. knows? Who knows what could happen? But I think the more reality sets in, Arsenal's scoring for fun and we've got them next. You look at the fixtures we've got coming up and the realism of it says we're down. We're just playing for pride, goal difference and see what we can come up with. But you never know. You look at you look at when we did it once before under Bassett and we're having Christmas parties every week. and There's always that romantic side of things. We can stay up. But I think the more and more we don't play well in games and come away yeah. with points, 
that's where the struggle comes. Because today we played well, but again, come away with nothing. Yeah, I, I mean, just to, to follow that up as well, and it's something that uh, I find very distasteful here at the moment that we're having to deal with in the Premier League with Manchester City over 100 charges and just keep pushing it all down the road as if nothing's happened and uh, that won't come to some sort of judgment for years by the sounds of it, which yeah. is absolutely ridiculous. And yet Forrester are waiting possibly to get another point deduction. Everton, who knows exactly what's going to happen with them there. That could make all the difference to the likes of yourselves, Burnley and Luton Town. I don't think it's fair on any of the clubs down there at the no. moment, do you? It's got to be sorted. It has. Teams need to know where they stand. You need to look at um, instances like when we went down with the whole, it's years ago with the Tevez thing, you didn't get sorted until yeah. after the season. And um, you look at teams that went down last season, the, these teams that have got 10 points looked at like Everton, should that not have happened last season? So the other teams will be aggrieved. I understand with the Man City, there's so many charges that it's going to take a long time to prepare a case. But when it's one or two charges, the earlier you sort it, the more teams know where they stand. Everton got 10 points took off them and they're still doing well. Yeah. Now, it, a lot of people will see it's unfair to get another 10 points off. But if you broke the rules, you broke the rules. That, that's my stance on it. Yeah. It's just it's a it's a false hope for us because we're starting with maybe just maybe we can sneak it if that happens. Yeah, I mean, um, but I, I, I don't have to rely on it. No, I also think that it, it, it it's a real mess uh, when it comes to all of this. Dan is because you may well have played against. Uh, I, I, I don't. I should know perhaps, but I don't know the results that you've had against um, uh, one or two of these sides like Forest and uh, Everton. If they were to lose ten points, that you'd already lost points to them. You know, the whole thing no. is a mess, isn't it? We, we did, we've done the double over Everton this season. Um, we've, we drew uh, against Forrest at Molyneux. We got uh, Forrest away in April. Okay, it's, it's frustrating. I'm really concerned what the Premier League are going to do with these 115 charges because my fear is it's going to get brushed under the carpet because if they do punish Man City, do Man City um, push for a, a European Super League? Well... You know what, if there are, the only thing I would say on that, if there are clubs that feel, and there's two or three of them or four of them possibly, if they feel the Super League is for them, um, you know, they're going to go. There's nothing we can do about that. I mean, the whole situation is absolutely ridiculous. But, but right now, I think what can be done is uh, it's just, it can be sorted. It's just, we're just hearing about things week in, week out now about top four, five, six favoured clubs that seem to, to be um, a, allowed to get away with all sorts of different things and uh, not to finish. I mean, you know, the, the, the Chelsea situation is, is now, I mean, Abramovich has still, has still not paid that money that he's got locked away. Um, there are then other things that uh, have happened with some of these other clubs as well. The whole thing just really is skewed because nobody seems... Um, able to look outside this top six sides. They're more marketable. That's where a lot of the income for the Premier League comes from, is people watching them from abroad. Yeah. Whereas, no disrespect to Forest, Champions League winners, European Cup, whatever you want to call it, team of great history, Everton, famous old club, they don't quite have that revenue brought into the Premier League that your Chelsea's, your Man City's, your Man U's do. And that people can say all they want that that has nothing to do with it. Of course it does. Premier League don't want to start losing revenue money by docking these club points and making fast work of it. Also, like like I said, with the threat of the Super League, etc. There's a business side to it. And as much as we don't like to see that dark side of football, it's there and it's not going anywhere for the foreseeable. It is, though. But, I mean, both of you must be like me when, uh, you know, I, I heard that Jim... Well, that interview, good interview, actually, with Dan Ryan. But, you know, Jim Radcliffe sitting down and saying... 
we're going to make Old Trafford this new stadium of the, the, the North, but we want the taxpayer, basically, governmental help. I mean, I've never heard so much rubbish in all my life. Have you? Absolute nonsense. That's absolute waffle. They should just regenerate Old Trafford as it is and just stick to what they're doing. Taxpayers shouldn't be building anything like that for anybody, anybody around Premier League club, especially with the money they've got. Dan? Yeah, I just think it's farcical. FFP, since he came in, has just helped the um, the bigger sides take a bit more of the, the pie and, you, you know, giving them more resources than the average club to be able to compete with them. It's it's farcical. I don't think we're alone, are we? I've, I've sort of, I mean, look, my side is Cambridge United and we're down in, in League One, so we have our own uh, things to think about. But I, but I speak to for a lot of fans week in, week out on this show as well. What we want certain things for all of us, including for our own clubs, is that, that there are rules that everybody knows if they break them, they get punished and swiftly. And if they don't, they don't. But not sort of a two-tier system. I think anything where it comes to financial uh, market, obviously accountants will always find a loophole their way around these sort of things until it's black and white and you, you can't... Um, you can't fool it, then we're stuck, I think. Just finally, uh, in our football in this first hour, the big FA Cup night tomorrow night. Coventry City up against Maidstone United. Really big this for both sides, actually. Coventry City um, having a really good time, particularly at home this season. Maidstone United, well, it's just uh, one of those great dreams. And getting this far is... Incredible, really. A win for either of these sides, and it's a quarter-final place, which would then mean they're only one step from a Wembley position in a semi-final. Let's speak then to Ross Cooper, Sky Blues Extra Podcast, and to the co-owner of Maidstone United, Oliver Ash. Uh, Oliver, I will come to you first, uh, if you'll forgive me, Ross. Um, it's great to talk to uh, both of you, but Oliver, uh, you must still be pinching yourself. Of this season, yes, absolutely, Mark. Yeah, it feels like uh, déjà vu. It's the same story that you were kind enough to ask me how uh, how things were going before we played Ipswich, and I expected that to be the last game in our FA Cup run, and it's still going on. So, well, hey, everybody's uh, cock a hoop. Everybody's enjoying it. The town is buzzing, and the fans are having the time of their lives. What's there not to like? No, I'm absolutely like that, and. Um, this time around, OK, you're away from home, but uh, there'll be a really big travelling support. Yes, uh, similar to the support we had in um, for the Ipswich tie, even though it's a Monday night uh, in Coventry, it's not an easy trip, but the fans are relishing the opportunity, which doesn't come around very often, to play in this round of the FA Cup against a team of the calibre of Coventry City. So there's a great effort to be made. I think there'll probably be a lot of sickies <laughs> tomorrow uh, and uh, 5,000... Party supporters will be making their way up uh, towards Coventry, and uh, yeah. so there should be a, a good atmosphere as there was uh, when we played Ipswich. Well, I'll tell you what, Oliver, it's a terrific ground, Ross Cooper, isn't it? I've actually been there once this season for one of your um, your league matches, uh, not because I support Sunderland, but the rest of my family do, and I'd got my uh, nephew over from New Zealand to watch his first game live. Uh, with Sunderland, and it was at Coventry uh, City, and uh, what the, the ground's terrific. The atmosphere there is fantastic, and you're really a club going places, whatever happens. Yeah, definitely, and uh, I think the atmosphere and the stadium has sort of transformed over the last sort of 
five, six years. Obviously, only a few years ago, we weren't even playing in Coventry. So it's massively changed, the change of ownership, the branding. It it feels like home for the first time, really. And I've been going since we obviously moved to the the Rico, as it was called, in 2005, 2006. And for the first time this season, it really does feel feel like ours. And even little things. Obviously, seats in the dugouts, you know, it used to just be wasp stuff. So it's nice to see and feel like we're at home now. Well, of course, it wasn't exactly what you wanted to see this weekend, was it? For a, um, last weekend, for a warm-up when you played uh, your last game. But you, you, you're, you're doing really well at home in the league, aren't you? Yes, only two defeats. The less said about Friday night, the, the better. That was, uh, we'll forget about that one. But uh, the beauty with football is obviously we've got uh, obviously a game coming tomorrow night. So... Yeah, the home form has been really, really impressive and that's been mainly while we're in the playoff mix in the Championship this season. So it's a difficult one, this, isn't it? Because playoffs are really important for the long-term future, but the opportunity for Coventry City to go a long way and, you know, Oliver will also uh, say this, you know, you're expected um, to be favourites for this game and then uh, then who knows what may well happen. Many changes going to be made for this match, do you think? I don't think so. I think the manager, Mark Robbins, has been pretty clear that it, you're not, you know, all respect to Maidstone, but you're not going to get a better opportunity to try and get to a quarterfinal, you know, with the other teams in the draw. So I don't think he wants to take any chances. I think he'll want to give some of the players a chance to respond to the disaster on Friday night against Preston. So I think I think it's going to be as strong as we can get, but we've got a lot of injuries at the moment. Um, so, yeah, I think it'll be as strong to, you know, as, as close to the strongest team that we can put out. Sakamoto was another one that got injured, didn't he, the other night? Yes, it looks pretty... Well, we're still waiting for official um, correspondence from the club about that, but it looks like it's something pretty serious. So, yeah, Which is a shame. What about the, the keeping situation? Well, that, yeah, it's a very good question. Uh, <laughs> that's asked my Robbins that. He, he, I don't know who he'll choose tomorrow. I think he might he might toss a coin before kick-off and, and then, you know, heads is Wilson and Collins is tails. So, I don't know, to be honest, he... he he said that, that we haven't got a number one. He's just got two goalkeepers who are fighting for a place, so we'll yeah. have to wait. So that's true. So Brad Collins perhaps doesn't get back into the side then? I think he might because I think he's playing the sort of backup goalkeeper in the Cups. And obviously he sort of was dropped last the last two league games. So maybe Robbins will stick with that sort of theory and, and put our number two as at the moment in the in for the cup. Mm. Um, let's come back to you, Oliver, if we may, and uh, just talk a little bit about the things that you've noticed this season at the club, those around it, as you mentioned, in the town and everything else. It it, it reminds me really as to why we, some of us, you know, it's, we, we support where we're born, a lot of us, or those, those areas that we've moved to when we first really get into this game, is that there is such an excitement when things do um, begin to happen and and you must have seen so much of that in in different storylines with the club this season well this season it's all happening in the fa cup really and uh it's the most extraordinary season since uh, i started um and we built the stadium so that's going back sort of 10 to 15 years because of this run in the fa cup and we've had exceptional games and the fans have had wonderful moments over in that run and just having the club back in town in itself, you know, somebody asked me the other day, "What this must be the most special moment uh, of your time at Maidstone. And, and actually, I don't think it is because it's so important for us to have, have sort of brought the club back to the town. That's mm. the that's the platform upon which 
you know days like tomorrow and, and runs like this are built otherwise there wouldn't be a club so that's mm. probably the the most important thing but what makes this special i think is the impact it's had on the town and i, I don't live in maidstone so i see this uh second hand but uh my son's actually working in maidstone at the moment uh, and, and training with the team and he says that there's an incredible buzz around the town and then suddenly mm. to have this town which isn't always the most favored place it's had its difficulties to be on the map like this and to have uh, you know the, the world take notice even if it's just for a few days is mm. uh, giving everybody in the town a real lift maybe there's a parallel in a way in a small way to what london went through when the olympic games were in london you know, it just sort of it buzzed everybody for a while and i think that's the main impact we see everything in the town yeah buzzing I, do you think as well, do you think as well i mean i think one of the things so i mean i look at cambridge united at the moment we're in league one but more importantly than that, uh, Paul Berry, who's our forward-thinking owner, uh, was able, uh, with the help of Supporters Trust and all sorts of other things, to buy back so that the, the, the ground itself that we've played at for many decades now is safe again and hasn't. we've had this hanging over us for many years. And I know that he's going to redevelop, but just in a, in a quiet way to start with a, a bits and pieces within that ground. But again, probably like you as an owner, uh, the thinking the same way, he realises from that now that that was an absolute major thing that he needed to make sure that he was probably, like anybody else, able financially to keep going with the club. Yeah. Well, every club is different, as you know, and, and our story is different from that. And uh, uh, we we have a club which is uh, one of the rare clubs to be already sustainable and it's, it's, mm. it's profitable sort of year by year. So the, the club is on a sound footing anyway. And the challenge we've got really is that um, the, the, the inflation on building costs is such that to continue to expand the stadium, which would probably be comfortable, we could add seats uh, on, on big match days, we are short of seats. It's so expensive now that even this cup run, the surplus funds won't really make a dent in the cost of building. So while this this all supports the club very very nicely and it puts us in a much stronger position mm. um it's not going to be so life-changing and we already own the stadium we've already invested in a very good business model as you know we've got the artificial pitch which brings in a huge amount of direct and indirect mm. revenue so that's not it's not quite the same as perhaps in the cambridge situation no, no. it is extremely good for us yeah and just one other thing on that i mean i um my local uh Curry House in Stamford, which is a lovely town in the north of, uh, in, in the south of Lincolnshire, North Cambridgeshire. We live nearby there. And Habib uh, sponsors Stamford Town, who are having a great season, a, a few leagues uh, down as well. And, and, and what I'm, I hear from a lot of different people is that, you know, a lot of people have turned back to focus on the clubs within the area they live because prohibitively, some of them for travelling and, and bigger clubs are. You know, families of four and five can't always afford to spend that, but they're finding by just joining the club uh, to watch it that they they come from. They they really find a different feel as a supporter. Yes, there's definitely uh, that side of things. We'll, we'll probably see some sort of positive impact, at least temporarily, after this cup run on attendances. Whether it lingers is a different matter. There's a lot of you know the five thousand that travel to. Coventry tomorrow and the travel to Ipswich there's an awful lot of those fans who don't come regularly to our matches so we're hoping certainly to pick up uh, a number of fans we try and make the match experience as comfortable as possible it's not always easy mm -hmm. um, so hopefully we will 
And this, comp this competition, you see, the, the, the difficulty is that some of the clubs who are in higher divisions than ourselves, the price differential from, from the National League or the National League South isn't that great. And because the income from other sources, for example, at the top level, it's uh, obviously TV money, mm -hmm. is so great, they can reduce their prices if they want. So there's not always that uh, competitive advantage. So, look, it's as I keep saying, it's always a real struggle to operate at our level, make a profit and avoid getting into difficulties. And even this last week, we've seen two clubs, Rochdale and, yeah. and Torquay, announce more difficulties every week clubs who don't operate in a, in a sensible business-like way get into difficulties mm -hmm. and that you know among apart from all the euphoria of, of this wonderful cup run that we've been having that's really what keeps uh, us boring business people going is to try to preserve this club mm -hmm. for generations of fans to come it's as simple as that but by being prudent that's what we'll achieve I don't know an awful lot about Torquay United, except to say that um, for many years I sat next to one of the best commentators I've ever worked with in Jim Proudfoot, and he was a massive fan of Torquay United. And, and uh, I also remember one of your great stars from many years ago when Sir Alex Ferguson uh, sat in the car park after he'd had a game for Torquay United and uh, opened his car door and ushered him in alongside him to say, come with us to Manchester United. You all know who I'm talking about there? Yeah, Lee Sharp. Yeah, exactly. So, come on. Um, wh where are we right now? Well, just to say, we're, we're not quite in administration yet. Okay. Uh, thank heavens. Uh, the is, is the ground for sale? Uh, no, the ground is owned by the council, so uh, which is a good thing uh, in our view. Uh, so we've got the ground protected, um, but the, the owners looking for buyers at this present moment in time. Uh, the administrators are standing by. Um, but time is running out, obviously, and uh, we're waiting for any signs of interest from any potential buyers. Yeah. So, so one more from you on this particular point as well is that how has it got to this stage? Because was this a case of the owner putting into money into the club, but it just was never enough? The owner's been putting in some money, as you say, since 2016 for a considerable amount of money. Uh, he had a five-year plan initially, um, which was very much about acquiring a stadium, a new stadium, because he felt quite strongly that, that we needed a, a, a ground that could generate far more income than Playmore could, or, you know, a seven-day week operation would bring money in and make the club sustainable. Uh, he's not been successful in acquiring a stadium, uh, so therefore that big part of his plan uh, has basically been rel relinquished and um, he's told the, the fans that basically five weeks ago, some, something quite majorly happened, which meant he could no longer continue his investment into the club and he would be relinquishing his chairmanship. Um, what do you feel as well then uh, on the, the YouTuber the front and everything that you hear from all of this about where the, the next generation coming through are thinking about all of this? Well, I mean, it's it's been such a mix of emotions. I mean, the initial sadness and worry uh, we had when the news broke, uh, but then we've got this this immense pride of seeing our community unite over the last few days and at the weekends. Um, so it's just such a weird mix of emotions right now. Uh, Talking United have so much potential. Uh, we're in the National League South right now, but we're obviously a proud football league club once. Um, it's in a unique area. It's always been an underdog football club. Uh, many stories of near to survival. You know, we've got loads of fight left in us, of course, but 
it's just been frustrating to obviously see the last few years just the sort of on the pitch, off the pitch, it's not quite worked. Uh, obviously, the playoff finals then to be where we are now, it's just it's just been really tough to watch. But there's, there's so much potential in this club and the place itself, as we showed at the weekend, really. But is there as well, um, and if I could bring you in here, Robin, again, it, does it have the ability to, has it just been mis, financially mismanaged or is there is there more to it than that? Well, when you consider the amount of money that has been put in, uh, and you look where we are now in terms of, uh, you know, halfway down, uh, you know, the, the Southern League, effectively, mm. uh, given that we were a league club, it's quite successful league club for a number of years. Given that all that money's gone in, you have to ask what's gone wrong. Uh, you know, we're one of a full, one of a few full-time teams. Uh, we've got a, a great ground, a good infrastructure, a very experienced manager. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, for all the ambition, we're, we, we failed. We failed on the pitch uh, and we're not succeeding. And I've been supporting the club for nearly 60 years. And this is, you know, the lowest ebb. Uh, you know, we're, we're struggling badly. Uh, there's been a complete disconnect between the owners and the supporters in recent times. Unfortunately, they're getting very angry, very fed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for some, I, I would say quite a large portion of those that turned up yesterday, which is very heartening to see. Uh, they're quite pleased that there's, there's some change imminent, but of course they're also very worried at the same time. Exactly that. So one more for you on that as well. Do you as a trust have various different plans if you were to go into administration or, dare I say, it, liquidation or something like this? Absolutely. We have been planning for this scenario uh, uh, for several months now. Where we have a, our own strategy group that's been looking for various uh, scenarios that might play out. Uh, obviously, we're our close neighbours are Exeter City, which is a, a community club, community-owned club, and a very successful one, perhaps the most successful one of all. So we've been talking to them. Uh, certainly in a, in a worst-case scenario, if we can't find, uh, find any buyers, uh, we will be ready and willing, uh, looking at all the options in terms of taking the club on. Mm. Sam, you're um, a lot younger than myself, obviously, and uh, and Robin. But do you have in, enough of the youngsters who want to come through and and help? Uh, what is you know? I mean, talking the Riviera down there in Devon. I mean, it's uh, it's it's a great place to go. You know exactly. We've got we've got a lot of young fans coming through. It's a big generation that go on the pop side of it. Um, it's, it's a well-supported club, definitely. I mean, it's it's a bizarre football club because we are out, as you say, in the South. A lot of people sort of grow up, move away from Torquay for kind of like job reasons um, and then move back when there's sort of successful football, if that makes sense. And yesterday showed that. Yeah. Um, so if you get those fans on board and the young fans that are down here, you've got a really good chance of constantly hitting two, 3,000. So there is that potential, but fans have just got to feel not like customers. They've got to feel like they have a voice, they're valued. And we felt like that a lot in the last few days. Um, we, it was so nice to see the club united yesterday, but it was also really sad because you know exactly what's going on right now. Yeah. And just finally from you, Robin, do you find that these sort of owners, in a way, they they sort of lead a, a sort of fantasy life of, because it's not the first time he's tried to tried to do things with other clubs like Bristol Rovers and... He's been involved in Speedway and other sorts of things like this. That these people actually, you're never quite sure whether they do have the club's interest at heart. It's not a football person. Uh, he hardly came to any matches. He would admit himself that he caught, caught himself uh, 
um, a, a person that's interested in motorsport, his interests lie in speedway and greyhounds and other developing stadiums, which unfortunately he's never successfully managed to do. Um, so there's no sentiment involved with him. He didn't have the local connection. He didn't have that love for football. And hopefully uh, somebody will come uh, who has yeah. that love. Maybe somebody who is local, maybe not. But they, they need to see the potential of the club, believe in it, uh, and have its best interests at heart. We don't want to get into the same problems again as we've got, we have with the existing owner of the club. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Time for us to uh, move on, obviously, to rugby right now. And uh, Six Nations, absolutely into it and into the middle of it and everything that's happening and same old, same old for certain parts of it. Nearly an extraordinary win for Italy against uh, France today. So Nick Easter and uh, George Shooter are both with me. Hi, guys. Evening, Mark. How are you? Hello, Sagas. Yeah, how very, are you? I'm very well indeed, I should think. Uh, before we even talk about anything with what, what happened um, with England and, and Scotland. I mean, what, what on earth was that, that Italy-France game today? <laughs> I, I must Yet. say, I only saw the first half, to be honest, so I can't really comment too much on that, but over to you, Mindy. Well, I only saw the second half, so... Uh, <laughs> between you, between... <laughs> no, tale no. of two countries here, haven't we, in their performances, but... Um, yeah. Yeah, I didn't... I, I just missed the Dante red car, which I think happened early in the second half, yeah. and... Yeah, Italy had the the entire run of the play. I mean, France, you know, they they still appear, or certainly are, actually hung over from their disappointment in the World Cup and don't seem to be able to get over it. Quite frankly, I know some people might be pointing to the fact that you know, from a home ground point of view, the the, the Stade de France um, has been used to the Olympics, so getting a bit of a makeover and they're moving around. But you know, it's mm. it's 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 a, it's a bit of grass. It's a pitch. You're playing in front of you know. Uh, uh, fervent home support that have backed you for the last four and a bit years and they're really struggling to find their mojo and, and Italy deserved to win they they did deserve to win I mean I did watch mm. only the second half and 
you know, apparently France all over in the first half. So maybe I'm I'm wrong in that assumption, but from what I saw, you know, it would have been one for the ages if that kick had gone over. Yeah. So let's uh, let's talk then a little bit in detail now about England uh, at Murrayfield. Um, just reading some of the newspapers and things, same old, same old, and what have you. Let's uh, first of all. Um, have both of your thoughts George if I if I could have your th thoughts here first you know what such a good start yeah I, I, Joe I'm sort of a little bit torn on this I, I, I like the fact that England have <clears throat> taken a few risks in selection when I say risks I mean you know someone like George Furbank's playing very well week in week out and, and he's a test player already so it's not a huge risk but I like the fact that we've gone away from uh, the, the sort of easy selections of old uh, and we're trying we look like we're trying to play a bit of rugby certainly with the, with the team selection um and I think actually up front things weren't too bad the scrum was a little bit hit and miss so, some of that may be down to refereeing interpretations and you know, that first sort of 10 15 minutes in uh, in, in a big game, in, in a tough place to play, uh, actually, I think England looked looked okay. I mean, scored a nice try and uh, were ten nil up after ten or fifteen minutes. Um, but I mean, just the, generally the the skill level, particularly of the, of the back line, there just seemed to be some really poor handling, uh, some terrible passing, terrible sort of lines running. Uh, just a little bit. I mean, a little bit looked a little bit amateurish to be honest uh, you know, you're thinking about these guys they're full-time professionals training all the time you don't expect to see those sort of mistakes even you know, e even on a big stage like uh, Edinburgh in the uh, Six Nations so I think there's I, I don't think you need to pull the trigger too quickly and there's already Steve Borthwick out uh, hashtags yeah. trending on Twitter and all that sort of stuff which is which is fairly crazy really given he's only re in, in his sort of second or well, first full year of the Six Nations yeah. in charge as it were before the next World Cup um, but there needs to be a bit more, certainly needs to be a bit more about England. I think they just don't seem to be anywhere close to anyone else in attack. Defence, again, I, I get it. They're trying some different things in defence to try and to adapt to a new coach who's in his third game in charge. But but still, I just don't see there's really much progress to to, to sort of shout about in, in the first three games of, of this, this tournament, which is a bit of a concern, I would say. So, so Nick, also put this into... Um... Uh, an area that we can all under, uh, understand about this as well, as George has said there. What is it that, uh, where is the skill factor for some of these England players? They've surely got those skills. What is it under the intense pressure of a Six Nations match or a, a, a World Cup match is so very different to the reasons that they've been picked because of their outstanding play for their clubs? Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, two guys that deserved to be picked and probably dropped more balls unforced were Ollie Lawrence and George Furbank, who have been pulling up trees for the last six months for their clubs and two clubs that play an attacking brand of rugby on the gain line, pressured with the defence in their face. And for me, it asked questions of the whole environment and the buy-in to attack. Now, Steve Borthwick, by his very nature is, is anti-risk and I applaud the fact he's gone with, you know, I, I still think there's some players that need to be put out of the pasture to be perfectly honest with you, but he's brought in some new faces that deserve it on form. But there was so much evidence in that game, not just as George says, the unforced errors that England will attack in certain areas or at certain times in the game, but actually they don't really buy into it and they'll revert to this box kicking and kicking for territory, which it's huge in a game of rugby. I mean, everything starts from how you, how you manage your kicking game and your kick, kicking strategy, but it wasn't getting them anywhere. 
and you just and you saw them hem up when the pressure came on. They all tightened up, went went to you know the box kick, uh, you know the, the the usual modus operandi for for England. And the thing that I don't buy into um, Saggers and and George is we always use this excuse with English rugby that the attack takes time to evolve. Well, the All Blacks, when they change their team, don't seem to have a problem. Ireland don't seem to have a problem. France, when they got a hold of, you know, a terrible French generation four years ago, didn't seem to have a problem. And if we look at Tier 2, Fiji and Japan don't seem to have a problem getting a hold of their attack straight away. We always seem to use the excuse of time and, yeah, guys come from different clubs. But as George has said, I mean, some of these errors were absolutely schoolboy, amateurish. Mm. Um, and for me, it's got to be, think, you know, back of your mind, you're thinking, do the coaches fully give them an environment, fully give them the confidence to play like that? Because that's the only sort of solution or, or answer I can sort of think of for why there are so many basic skill errors. Looking at England uh, as uh, far as uh, I can tell, I'd like to sort of, for both of you, uh, Nick and George, I'll come to you first this time, George, if I may, is that what do England really do? It, this is the start of another four-year cycle to the next World Cup. There are all sorts of other bits and pieces that seemingly are going to be sort of dripped in on the way and things like that. The Six Nations obviously are a major tournament, but so too now are all the other bits and pieces that that players have to be involved in. Should it not just be, though, at the stage here is, you know, get whoever's the England coach, in this case, Steve Borthwick, you know, pick pick who you want to now develop and let them do the things that they do at club level, which I know is not easy, but at international level. I'm, I'm thinking here about one or two of the halfbacks and the changes and what have you. They didn't do the sort of things that they would normally do for the likes of Northampton Saints. and, and Yeah, like and again, there's been quite a lot of this on social media this weekend. And uh, I, mean, I think I, we, we were speaking about it during the World Cup and after the World mm-hmm. Cup and before the tournament that actually it's an opportunity now for that, for that clean slate for, for Steve Borthwick and... Uh, and then they go and pick, um, yeah, no disrespect to these guys, but they go and pick Joe Marler, Dan Cole, Danny Kerr, Elliot Daly even, maybe even uh, you could put Itoje in that that category. Guys that probably aren't going to be around for the next World Cup. I mean, again, I, I can't really see Dan Cole playing at 40 years old in in, in the next World Cup. Um, so, uh, yeah, there, 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 there needs to be a question that, and this is a little bit what Eddie Jones did, I think, to a certain degree. He showed faith with a lot of players, and actually, their form uh, for England, and actually, some of them for their club, wasn't that great. You have to pick people on form. You have to, it's not, it's not, there's no guarantee that you play well for your club, that you'll, you'll be a fantastic international player. There's no yeah. guarantee. The game's far different. There's, it's a reason they're called test matches. It's, it's a lot harder than the Premiership, it's a lot harder than even Europe. But if you're not playing well, if you're not playing to the best of your ability week in, week out in your club, then there's no way you, you can you can actually just turn it on for international. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the flip side of that, if you've if you've been a great player for ten years, there's no there's no guarantee you can keep that going. Even even when the if if, if you, you play like an all black team or you have a really big crunch test match like a Scotland away at Edinburgh, there's no guarantee you can just turn it on. You've got to pick players who are in form and then you can probably make a sort of decision after 10, 12, 14, 15 test matches. Okay, do you know what? This guy's a very good club player, maybe not a test player. And then you can sort of not, not get rid of them because there's always a chance they'll, no. they'll improve over time. But then you you can shuffle your deck a bit more. Um, I think what you can't do is just say, oh, do you know what? We're just going to pick 
these players because I know them, I trust them. They they play sort of like the game I I like, and then try and get them to play something slightly different when they're playing for England. It's just it seems a little bit like Nick said earlier on. I'm not too sure. Uh, if we're talking too much about the players, maybe we're not talking enough about the coaches and I mean, mm. neither are us on the ground there at, at, uh, at training sessions, so we don't really know what's going on. But it does look like it's not a particularly well-coached team right at this moment. There's not a lot of direction, not a lot of uh, resilience in that team. So with hindsight, Nick, um, from your uh, but give us some uh, sort of, um, of your own experiences here. How long would you say it would have taken you to really feel comfortable at international level then? Um, I mean, I made. I on a personal note, I made my my debut at, at 28 years old, and you know it's very different than when you're making your debut at 20, 21, I suppose. And so, from a life experience rather than a rugby experience, you know, you know it's slightly different. Um, and you know, I was willing to grab. You're always willing to grab it. You know, I don't want to sort of like. Of course, I've not been in the position of making my debut in early 20s, but. You know, I felt that this is the only time. This is the only time to make a mark. Let's go and grab it with both hands. So from my, from my point of view, it was the challenge, as George says. Test match is exactly that. And the biggest thing for me in a test match, Sagas, yes, it was great to represent your country um, and to play with the best players in your country. But it, was, but it was challenging yourself against the best players in the world and the best teams in the world. That that was the ultimate. And that's what you always wanted to achieve as a rugby player. And do you also find, though, that, you know, we talk these days, oh, I talk to my talk to my daughter actually she's a psychotherapist and deals with all sorts of different sportsmen and women and, and other people as well at the, at the high end but she feels that you know for men you, you, the, the no consequence part of the brain doesn't kick in till after you're 25 that perhaps coaches should use that in that you know let them make one or two mistakes they won't feel uh, as bad about it as you perhaps as the coach will if it didn't happen to work on that occasion but it gives them strength for next time when they know exactly what to do yeah well look rugby teams there's got to be a blend there's got to be a blend of youth and experience and guys that are in between as well and probably at the peak of their powers athletically and and mentally and the experienced guys you know could be at the peak of their powers physically but probably mentally more so and, and clearly the youngsters from a physical point of view and it's all about getting that blend people mature at very different rates different positions as well require you know different pressures um yeah, there's no doubt about it you know the, the sort of the static skills of kicking for goal and um you know throwing in a line out like george did you know there's a lot a lot to think about it's not suddenly chaos mm. in the moment which becomes instinctive and what you train for um, but it's about getting that blend. And the, these guys, you know, they, they, they've got all the tools, you know, yeah. far better tools than, than, than we had a, a, in our in our era in terms of, you know, the psychologists at clubs, the mental preparation, you know, the skill level, the quality of coaching is far better as well in terms of the technical and tactical side. Everyone knows what you're trying to achieve and why you're trying to achieve it. Um, so these guys mature a lot quicker, um, both mm -hmm. physically and mentally. But, you know, it comes back to, you know, what sort of style of play do you think will win test matches for England and take England forward in four years? And who are the players that can implement that? Forget about what your game plan and ideal way of playing is. It's not about that. You pick your cattle and then you, you, you drive your direct and involve your game plan around that cattle and around the best players you've got there. And the ones that you earmark and, and, and ID mm. will be world-class players. Because for England to be a force... Um, you know, in the top four and within a shout of winning the next World Cup, and I hate talking World Cup cycles, but that's what we're talking about, yeah. is you need to have 
you know, four or five players who are world class, i.e. in the top three of your position in the world. And at the moment, I don't think we've got one. So how do you go about trying to search for that or, or to get those that, that you think, George, are close to that, but that you can improve, improve them with only having them for a certain amount of time? Yeah, it is difficult. The system over here is not structured like it is in Ireland, yeah. uh, New Zealand, or or even Australia and South Africa to a certain degree. Um, yeah, the clubs have the control of the player for ninety uh, percent of the season. They do have to have rests and that, and, then, and they do have a, a period where they can go and train with England. So it's not it's not easy. Of course, it's not. Um, but what you what you have to do is you have to adapt. You can't sit there. Uh, every World Cup finishing third, fourth, fifth, sixth, saying, oh, you know what, the system's rubbish. We can't win because uh, our hands are tied behind our back. You, you've, you've got to find a way out. You've got to, you've got to get around that situation. That, And I think that's where we, we can start maybe laying some of the blame at the coaches. Yes, you've got a limited period of time. So what are you doing in that time? Are you trying to do too much? Are you trying to cover everything? Or should you say, do you know what, we've only got, uh, I don't know, a 10-week block over the Six Nations. We've got a 10-week block. Let's make sure that these uh, eight things are, are perfect. We do these eight things better than any other team in the world. Um, and then we'll see where we get to from there. And some of that's got to be um, just saying to the players, like, like Nick says, hey, you've got players like Finn Smith and Mark, I know Marcus Smith is injured at the moment. Why don't you just sort of give them a give them a go and say, look, yeah. just go and play your game. Free reign. Uh, and I think, as you said there, the, the players are far more mature these days, a bit more robust perhaps than than, than people think they are. Um, you know, they're not so, they don't get their confidence knocked so much. Um, but at the moment, you've got George Ford playing at 10 and he's or 85, 90-odd caps in into his career, uh, and he's not running a game. And I'm not blaming him specifically. There's other other issues there. But Nick's talking about those sort of five or six players who uh, have got the experience and potentially could be world-class. Well, you'd probably put him in that category to a degree because of the way he has played in the past. But he doesn't look like an 85, 90-cap fly-half to me at the moment. He looks like a guy who's surrounded by guys who don't really know what he wants. And uh, and that's that's that why the... Well, one of the reasons yeah. why the game is, is not even stalling it's not even up in gear yet <laughs> you make some good points there and, uh, and Nick is there a is there a case here that at times that you know you said I don't want I don't like talking about the four-year World Cup cycle um, I agree with that by the way on everything I think it, it you know you you still want other players who in that third fourth year possibly who are suddenly showing something that they never showed before in club rugby and, and could be part of something that you want to do but, but is there a sort of safety first part of coaches at this level that stops some of the younger individuals um, ever really doing what they want for as long as they should do? Um, or that we perhaps think that longevity is something that uh, shouldn't perhaps exist if you're not still managing to do what you were brought in for, which your talent showed you had, that you can't perhaps do after five, six years. You, you know, that's it. You, you, you get a four-year cycle, you do the best, you get an opportunity because you were great or even a, a second one, but not everybody. But there's too, there's too much, too much um, uh, of all of this, of the coaches sort of holding everybody back. Yeah, look, I mean, I think the first thing, probably I've said, um, which we say disappointing result is, yeah, the England England head coach after the All Blacks head coach is is the most pressurised uh, head coach <coughs> job in rugby. Yeah, and so and allied to that, international rugby is about winning. It's about the here and now. Let's make no bones about it. It's yeah. about winning. 
So if you put those two things together, you can understand or see where the thinking is in keeping a few older guys that know how to win test matches or can you know, draw on their experiences to you know, help the youngsters learn in the camp. But at the end of the day, you've still got to be able to do the job, right? You can't be a passenger, especially with 23 people now available. Yeah. However, what Steve Borthwick and his coaching team have got now is they have actually got a license to blood these players. The support base in England was so put off with English rugby and lost its connection in the, the latter stages of the Eddie Jones era that, you know, we, we obviously he got fired a year before the World Cup. Steve Borthwick came in and... If people can see what our identity is or what we're attempting DNA or we're wanting to get you know, bums off seats, even though that might not be the most pragmatic way to win a rugby match, they're, 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 you know, you'll, ha you'll have a little bit more um, time on your hands, you know, a bit more of a stay of execution as far as that role is concerned. Because the RFU, starts up, the RFU have said they back him for the for next four years. Yeah. They've said we back him for the next four years. But at the moment, you know, the pressure's coming on because... As, as George says, you know, we're not even getting up gear to put in a performance. Whereas if you can actually see the ember, you know, the sort of like the green shoots of an attacking game, if you like, or it doesn't matter whether it's just a set piece and a really good kicking game, you know, to, to be honest. But, you know, I know we want to see more ball in hand because, you know, you look at Ireland and France, the way they play and the All Blacks and everything. We know that's the way rugby you know, is played a lot more now and, and with success. But if we actually saw something like that, he has got a stay of execution that I don't think, certainly in a recent past, an England head coach has had. Yeah. Um, you know, I was around when, you know, Andy Robinson got sacked, Brian Ashton came in for, you know, a year and a half, then Martin Johnson came in, he did three or four years, Stuart Lancaster had four years. You know, Steve Borthwick's got the stay of execution of five years and of what happened in the, you know, the sort of latter stage of Eddie Jones's tenure is he's got a lot more patient English supporters and media, but... Yeah. We need to it's, see what you're trying to do. It's a totally different game to international football. But for me, Gareth Southgate uh, is, a, is, is the sort of classic one who has got a lot of fair players. They'll get ahead in all these games <clears throat> at the high end of the games in semi-finals and finals of Worlds and European Cups. <clears throat> they show really great promise and they score early in semi-finals and finals. And then instead of going on and... and going for the absolute throat, he then has them all, drags them all back again, and in the end, they they end up losing it. Could that be the case if you don't let some of these youngsters who've got absolutely raw talent just have a go for a while and see what happens? George? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you, have to look, you don't have to look at the football to see. I think Warren Gatton and, and Wales is a pretty good example. I mean, I know they've, they've lost games and... But I think it's exactly what Nick was saying there. You can actually look at the Welsh and say they've they get a bit of an identity. They've, they've had some huge players, some of their greatest ever players retire uh, even before the last World Cup. But they made a pretty good show of that World Cup. Everyone wrote them off. They weren't going to get a chance, and you know, they, they they had their worst game against Argentina in the quarterfinals. Otherwise, they could have been in a World Cup semi final. Um, and then this this Six Nations, everyone had written them off again. Uh, and Warren Gatlin has somehow managed to galvanise a, a group of young players that everyone, no one's heard of. I mean, even the captain, probably no one really outside of Wales would have genuinely thought that the, 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 this, the squad that was named would actually make a splash in the tournament. But they, they could have beaten England. I mean, the, the score uh, this weekend against Ireland was flattering to Ireland. I think 
17 uh, nil at half time and uh, 77 at half time I think it was and if the Welsh had scored after half time and, and they had quite a bit of pressure that sort of inexperience showed there but if they'd scored there mate, I think Gatlin said this as well if they'd, mm. if they'd got, a point, got, a, got a try or so out of there then suddenly that game is very different Ireland showed their quality and scored two tries later on and, and, and killed them off but you know, you can if you're a Welsh now, you're probably feeling okay because you've got a, a very young squad of players a very young captain uh, and they're they're getting stuck in. They look like they want to be there. They're they're they're, they're playing out their skins at the moment in in many aspects of the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, where where England, I'm, I'm not I'm not accusing England of of not trying. That's that's wrong. No, no. I, I probably would never do that uh, to a professional sports team anyway. No. But they do look at sixes and sevens. You, you can't tell me that that Welsh team is not uh, outplaying this English team. This I don't care what the result was last week or two weeks ago rather. So that that's that's a pretty good comparison and you know your you, Gareth Southgate in England is, is pretty good as well but you don't say you don't have to look too far away to realise what actually England could be trying to achieve hmm. and a final thought from you uh, Nick is uh, what do you do then if you're Steve Borthwick for the rest of this Six Nations do you let them off the, the lease a little bit more you allow them to play more in the way that they perhaps do at club level that have first interested the selection of them into the international team or do you have to think we've got to win another game this season no um the uh i think i think you've got to blood the youngsters i think you've got to play finn smith at 10 um i think that fire waboso's proven that uh, you know he's going to be a bit of a handful as well and he's the sort of player that you know we've got ireland and france next that you need that power and go forward ollie lawrence has got to be given time furbank's got to be given time as well there same as freeman in the backs I'd love to see George Martin start. I know he's been coming back from injury, but you, you've got to give all these guys. You know, I suppose the the only guy that performed yesterday um, from the previous eras, if you like, was Sam Underhill, and so you keep him in there. You, you know, because he's performing, and ultimately that's what it's about. You've got to do the job. You've got to be the best at doing that job with what we're trying to put um, put out there. Um, so I would blood all of them because, as I said, he's got free reign now. These guys have got to get as many experiences as possible. It's going to hurt. You know, people go back to 2003, there was the 98 Tour of Hell, wasn't there? You know, where a lot of them were on that. Um, and, you know, they learn from those experiences and learn pretty quickly. And you, and you learn fast, you know, that the higher the level you are in failure, you learn fast. And look, no one's expected to do anything as Ireland and France. Let's be honest, we've won two out of five for the last, I think, three or four or, or yeah. three out of the last four Six Nations. And it was Italy and, and Wales, I think, most of the time as well. So, you know... The, We'll just be on a par in terms of the results are concerned. But what we need to see is that these guys are actually being thrown in there. Yeah, it's into the bear pits, into the lion's den, but it's sink or swim, isn't it? And mm. only then are you going to find a little bit more about what you're trying to achieve. Time to talk about uh, a test series which has uh, just been extraordinary so far, start to finish, hasn't it? Uh, expertise of Neil Burns has been a delight, of course, throughout the series, as always. Neil, uh, good evening to you. And uh, perhaps just seeing after another incredible day of cricket that England um, up against it now when it comes to whether they're somehow going to still get out of uh, taking it and hoping to have got somewhere so that they could have gone to the last test match still in with a chance of winning the series. Yeah, good evening, Mark, and good evening, everybody. It's been the most absorbing test match of what has been a brilliant test match series, but unfortunately... As things stand, it looks like unless we get a Bob Willis type miracle, 
from Headingley in 1981, where he took eight for 43. <laughs> I can't see England coming back in this game. And unfortunately, it'll mean they'll go to Dharmashala for the last game with England 3-1 down in the series, as opposed to it being 2-all, which I think it should have been if we were able to capitalise on a brilliant innings played by Joe Root mm. in the first innings of this Test match. Just l- looking at that second innings as well, I mean, the... Is it as as fair to say that the the, the 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 spinners for India really got more out of the pitch? Well, I think that's to be expected because they're much more experienced and they are f- of far higher quality. We've got a part-time spin bowling Joe Root. We've got um, a young off-spinner in Shoa Bashir who's playing his eighth first-class match in his second Test match. And whilst Tom Hartley has bowled well at times and bowled brilliantly in the first Test match and to take seven wickets, fundamentally uh, inexperienced bowlers cannot sustain their accuracy uh, over extended periods of time. And I think against quality players of spin bowling like Inder have got, Mm. then that's been proven. But the biggest disappointment for me uh, in today's play was that we were in great shape with the bat and we should have really put them out of sight and we lost our last five wickets for not many runs. And uh, there are so few people who were really there to support the contribution um, initially of Zach Crawley. Um, I thought Johnny Besto played well for a period of time. Yeah. I thought Ben Folks played well, but to lose the last five wickets for virtually nothing was very disappointing. And then at the end, I still thought we had a chance mm. if we bowled well with a new ball. But I was amazed that Jimmy Anderson wasn't given a new ball and instead... Joe Root was used, which I thought was a was a big error. Yeah, it was it it was in a way very different again, which just shows the complexities and uh, of Test cricket, wasn't it? That sort of we didn't see England lose wickets because of expansive play here. We saw them because they were beaten by the skill of the the the, the Indian spinners, really. Yes, I think it says a great deal about the quality of the Indian spin bowling. First of all, uh, Ravi Ashwin. Uh, hearing him talk at the close of play about how in the east part of the country the ball doesn't bounce as much as he's used to. So he, rather than actually having overspin on the ball, he, he undercuts the ball and tries to do people with balls that slide on <clears throat> and looks to get people out uh, LBW more. Um, but I thought Kuldeep bowled brilliantly too. And um, I mean, the ball that got Ben Stokes, I thought was just fantastic. He just drifted in to his pads and then spun away in the way that Shane Warne bowled some brilliant leg breaks as a right-hander down the years. Mm -hmm. But India seemed to not only produce some wonderful spin bowlers, but they've got some really good seam bowlers these days. And this series has also unearthed some brilliant young batsmen too. And it might be that Jai Swal is the guy who wins the game for them tomorrow. We really need to get him out with a new ball in the morning. There are other bits and pieces, aren't there, as well? And, you know, wicketkeeper batsman here and Jurel, who's only in, really, isn't he, because of... Uh, other other problems at the moment. That that staying there overnight when they were seven down was vital, wasn't it? It was. It was a very intelligent and cultured innings. Yeah. Uh, and Ben Folks has done that on a number of occasions mm-hmm. in his career. Shepherded the tail brilliantly, but it also says something about the bowling as well. You know, successful cricket teams have bowlers who strike with a new ball up front and dismiss the opposition's best players early on, but also have bowlers that uh, come back and knock over the tail cheaply. Um, So I I think um, 
whilst it was wonderful for Shah Bashir to get five wickets, it was just a shame that we couldn't have had a bigger first innings league because at that stage um, we were really in command of the match. And I think it also is a uh, an example of where the England cricket team is at at the moment in that it is promising. It gets itself into good positions but doesn't always close them out. It has some really good days but doesn't necessarily have consecutive good days to win matches. And when we do play one in a match, win a match, we don't do it consistently enough throughout a series. So um, I think Ben Stokes and Brendan McCullum will be delighted on this tour that some young players have, have performed well. But what we need is people like Zach Crawley, who's had a really good test match here, mm-hmm. to actually go on and make a big century and, and make it count. <clears throat> And, and and with that in mind as well, for the likes of Show Bashir and and others too, the five test series, uh, I don't care what anybody says, is, is particularly great for, let's say, England in India, India against Australia, possibly another big series like this, that, you know, there are so very rare occasions that these England spinners will perhaps get the opportunities that they've had here in India so much in the future that perhaps we should still look at restructuring a bit and that five test series now and again are fantastic. They are and it offers an opportunity for narratives to develop where individual bowlers really get a hold over a particular batsman. I think of down the years how Glenn McGrath used to get Michael Atherton out on a regular basis (laughs) and then by the time you get to the fourth or fifth test match it's almost like you just much as as hard as you try, you kind of know the individual's got the wood over you. Um, But I think the opportunity that this test match um, has offered England and the one that they haven't taken is that Jasper Bumrah has been rested because it's a five-match series and the nature of back-to-back test matches means they're very tiring both physically and mentally and obviously Virat Kohli hasn't been playing either. So there was a great opportunity for England to beat an understrength Indian team but what's been most impressive has been the way that other players have really come to the fore in the Indian team. And tomorrow, you know, there's still a lot of cricket to be played. We don't know how this pitch is going to play based on how it played on the first morning on day one. You'd have thought the game may not have gone three days. No. But it's been a, a good test match pitch, but it still might have a few surprises in it tomorrow. And it might be that one or two balls keep low. And if Anderson and Robinson and Shoa Bashir can bowl accurately enough and build pressure on the Indian batsmen, there still may be a few more twists and turns in this fantastic... I'm I'm pleased you've said that. I mean, basically, you nearly would say, wouldn't you, to this England side tomorrow, look, we just don't know. Let's let's give it a go here. This pitch could still help us. Yeah, and unfortunately tonight... Uh, um, this morning, which is the end of the yeah. uh, the session for on day three, we bowled poorly and gave them too many full tosses and therefore it doesn't matter what the pitch is like because it gets taken out of the equation if the ball doesn't land on it. Um, showed the inexperience, particularly of Tom Hartley and, and the lack of quality that is in Joe Root's bowling. Tomorrow morning, we absolutely have to bowl our best bowlers and for me, that will be Robinson and Anderson up front. Um, and then hopefully Bashir can follow up what was an excellent first innings performance with another good performance second time round. And the other thing is the quality of the catching round the wicket has to be yeah. absolutely top class too. That's it for this episode of Back of the Stand. And thank you to all my guests and most importantly to you. Hope we've given you something to speak about. 
please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast. So from me, Mark Saggers, we'll take that step up to the back of the stand next time. Goodbye. Mother's Day is just around the corner, and it's time to pamper the special moms in your life. In what better way than with Osea's limited edition skincare sets featuring clean, vegan, cruelty-free products that are safe for your skin and the planet. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been making seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. This Mother's Day, Osea has two limited edition sets, perfect for gifting or keeping for yourself. Their Golden Glow Body Set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for silky, smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow and Go Facial Set has everything she needs to achieve spa-level results at home. They're so beautiful, you can skip the wrapping. For a limited time, you can save up to $48 on Osea's sets, plus get free shipping. That's Mother's Day made easy. Pamper the moms in your life and get 10% off your first order site-wide with code MOM at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code MOM.